Well, we are officially now in March Madness. March Madness, uh, or the Big Dance, as it is known, refers to the NCAA Men's Division I Basketball Championship. That's a three-week, 68-team, single elimination tournament to determine the National Collegiate Basketball Champion. It's become one of the most famous annual events in the United States each spring. Millions of us filling out our bracket. Mine has been totally busted as of last night. Millions more bet in a pool at the office, you know, in the shop with friends online. We're not advocating, but we're not condemning it either. So I'm hoping to win. (laughs) Don't stand much of a chance since, you know, I was only 20 out of 32 on the first round. So, but today, as Tony indicated, we are in the home stretch of our church's second 40 day adventure following the radical Jesus. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark today, chapters 11 and 12, where the backdrop and the timeline is the annual Jewish Passover, which is the most popular annual celebration in the nation of Israel. Hundreds of thousands of pious Jews would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem from all over the Holy Land. And the temple, with its worship and sacrifices, was the epicenter of it all. And it's in the middle of this backdrop that the events of the Passion Week, the last week, actually unfold. Our 40-day adventure is a life-changing season of growth that coincides with the historic observation of Lent. It will culminate in our Easter celebration next Sunday. Parenthetically, uh, we do have invitations to the Easter service at Guest Central, and you may want to pick up uh, several of those if you're inclined to invite family friend, co-worker, classmate, or one of the five friends for whom you are praying. Uh, Our 40-day adventure is uh, rooted in three cornerstone prayers for ourselves and our family, for our five unchurched friends who could benefit from the touch of Jesus and his kingdom in their life, and then for our church family in the communities that we represent. We are studying through the entire Gospel of Mark, two chapters a week, although this week now uh, our assignment expands to include the balance of the, of the Gospel, chapters 13 to 16. And lastly, many of us are undergirding our 40-day adventure with some sort of fasting. I want to encourage you to hang in there. We've got one week to go. Uh, I am grateful for all of you who are willing to voluntarily Surrender yourselves in humility this way. It's one of the purposes of Lent, identifying with the suffering Savior through intentional fasting. So we bless you one week to go. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful this morning for your goodness. You are good all the time. And at the start of a brand new week, we're grateful for life, for breath, soundness of mind, healthy enough bodies that enable us to gather together. Lord, our past is your mercy Our future is your providence. Our lives are in your hands, and you control our destiny. We pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Uh, May your kingdom come. May your will be done here on earth, in our lives, in our families, in our friends, uh, and, and in our community. May your will be done. Would you put power on your word to our lives in the way that you know each one of us needs? And not just here in this room, but but next door where Vineyard Kids are celebrating uh, Palm Sunday as well. We ask it in your name. Amen. 
Jesus lived 33-plus years, had personal exchanges with hundreds of people, possibly delivered a 1,000 messages in his three and a half years of ministry, healed tens of thousands of people, and yet when one reads the four gospel accounts of his life and ministry in general, and the book of Mark in particular, uh, we're struck with the speed and the brevity of the collection of material. But it's interesting that in stark contrast to the earlier portions of their stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all slow down on the last week of Christ's life as they account, uh, recount the, the um, details of Christ's betrayal, his suffering, death, and resurrection. In fact, the last week, or Holy Week, as it's often called, occupies one-third of Matthew and Mark, a fourth of Luke, and nearly one-half of the Gospel of John, just to illustrate the relative importance of the events of this week. And so this week, I I want to encourage all of you that are participating in the 40-day adventure to read Mark chapters 13 to 16 very slowly meditatively, reflectively, perhaps even several times, understanding its relative importance in the scope of Christ's life. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, you know, to peel back the the, the numbness of familiarity where we kind of mindlessly read through the story because we, we've read it uh, maybe a time or two or dozens of times in the past, and and, and, and to break that, that having been inoculated against freshness and vitality. Ask him to give you new eyes as you read and prepare for Easter celebration next weekend. Now, Mark 11, which inaugurates the last week, opens with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Not coincidentally, today is Palm Sunday. That's the Christian feast day as opposed to a fast day. A feast day that commemorates this event, and historically, it moves to fall on the Sunday before the celebration of Jesus' resurrection on Easter. And all around the globe today, uh, over 2 billion followers of Jesus are united together in spirit and celebration and worship and in anticipation of the events of Holy Week. And I, I don't know about you, but that is just really, really encouraging to me, that we're part of a much larger and much older story. The story is about the establishment of God's kingdom by God's Savior for God's glory. The story is not about us, friends. I hate to disappoint you. It's about God and his glory. Now, we've been invited into that story, and our lives find significance and security and purpose in that story. But we're really only a small part of a much bigger thing. Now, weeks like this one that are bookended with Palm Sunday today and Resurrection Sunday next weekend they serve to powerfully remind us uh, that, that we're not alone, but that we're a vital part of a, a much larger worldwide community and a much larger story that actually is still being written and will conclude on the day when Jesus Christ, the risen King, comes back personally in the second coming. Now, I'm, a, I'm afraid at times, though, that we've, 
we've been profoundly influenced by Western individualism in our reading and understanding and living of the Bible. We, we can kind of think of the Bible as a story that's really about our personal life improvement, that it's about a personal improvement project, you know, with the individual, say, me, at the center, rather than a sustained and relentless work of God the Father, the Creator, in, in restoring everything to Himself to set the world to right, both people and creation itself. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about this, this, uh, story, this unfolding large story of, of, of the establishment of God's kingdom for His glory by His Savior, His Son. It's easy to forget that for the majority of history, uh, the Bible has been read and processed and practiced in group settings. Most people beyond the Western world in the last 200 years never conceived of the Bible as being written personally to them, but rather to the, the group of which they were a part. It's, it's a communal book. And those groups of people saw themselves standing in a long, continuous line of communities that, that stretched from the creation of the world uh, until Christ's return when the kingdom is completed. They, they never saw themselves as individuals with whom God was dealing, but, but, but they were connected to a larger community that was a part of a much larger story. And, and weeks like this served to remind me of that. And I find great deal of comfort and encouragement that we're, we're a part of a larger community and we're a part of a much larger story. And through the course of our 40 days, we've been doing these inductive imperative exams uh, just moments of reflection on what we're learning. At this point, my I, I exam in, in, the, in the text would, would be, how have I allowed Western individualism to affect my view, my understanding, and, and even my practice of the Bible? Do I look at it as a collection of promises to me as a person, or rather as God's unrelenting redemptive work in the world to set the world, people, and creation back to right? Now, in Mark chapters 8 to 10, uh, Mark has recorded the three passion predictions. We've seen that where Jesus has to his uh, uh, apostles astonishment and inability to comprehend. He has predicted his betrayal, his suffering, death and resurrection in three days in the city of Jerusalem. And now Mark identified Jerusalem uh, in verse one of chapter 11 as uh, the, the source the seat, the environment, uh, the setting of what's to, to unfold. Mark 11, uh, verse 1. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. So here now we, we've begun, uh, we, we, we see kind of the climax of, of what began in Mark chapter 8, verses 31. Jesus, the warrior king, now adopting the revelation, Jesus, the suffering servant, set his heart on Jerusalem. And here now they're finally arriving. And uh, Mark is indicating that the story is shifting to, to find its fulfillment in, in the events of the next chapters. Bethany was the village home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead in John chapter 11. This town was about two miles from the Temple Mountain, a comfortable walking distance. And it was apparent, apparently with a word of knowledge uh, that he received 
a supernatural deposit of information about the future that he would not have otherwise known, that Jesus now commanded two of his disciples to go into the neighboring city and secure an unbroken donkey colt for his entry into the city. He gave them very specific instructions on what they were to say when the onlookers or the owners would challenge what they were doing. And sure enough, it happened just as Jesus predicted, and his words that were delivered by the twelve with uh, a ring of authority, uh, uh, well, he allowed them to, to, to carry them, the donkey colt, back uh, to the crew. The two brought the colt back to Jesus, and the disciples took off their garments and threw them over the, the back of the colt for Jesus uh, to provide a sort of saddle, makeshift saddle for him. And because then in ancient Near East culture, it was customary to cover the path of someone worthy of the highest honor, we can read uh, in Mark 11, the text continues, verse 8, Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest, highest heaven. Now, Matthew tells us that this moment, uh, that in this moment, Jesus came in fulfillment of one of the Old Testament prophets named Zechariah. The ninth chapter of his book, we read this. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, this prophecy was spoken in about 520 B.C., and it's a promise that's indicating that Jesus the Messiah would enter Jerusalem as the king, the new and final David, coming to his capital city to reign over God's people. And so now on this Palm Sunday, uh, in, in, in the text in Mark 11, nearly five centuries later, we see the hopes and dreams of the Jewish people were about to be fulfilled. Even if it's going to be in a way that will turn their long-standing expectations upside down. The radical Jesus is going to flip everything upside down. Now the symbolism of the donkey uh, may refer to an Eastern, ancient Near Eastern tradition that it's an animal of peace as contrasted to a, a horse, which is uh, 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 an animal of war. A king would come riding upon a horse when he was bent for war and rode upon a donkey when uh, he wanted to point out that he was coming in peace. And so Jesus' entry to Jerusalem would thus symbolize that he is truly the suffering servant, the Prince of Peace. But the crowd is like wild with excitement. It, it probably looked nothing at all like the, the sedate and antiseptic historic paintings we may have seen of Palm Sunday or even the Sunday school curriculum pictures that our kids are coloring today in Vineyard Kids, uh, although they will get a palm branch as an object lesson. It probably looked a little more like March Madness, to be quite honest with you, when a seventh seed, Illinois, upsets a second seed, Miami. Oh, that's right, that hasn't happened yet, has it? <laughs> or this year when a number of 12s upset number fives and, you know, a 14 beat a three or whatever, you know, whatever. 
These people were stoked. You just have to imagine jumping and leaping and shouting and high-fiving and fist-pounding. That's probably more the environment that happened on this original Palm Sunday. They were prophetically singing the 118th Psalm. And that would have been uh, the, the, the last of the Hallel, the song that they would have sung at the traditional Seder dinner to conclude the dinner. They were now shouting it in prophetic anticipation that the Seder was being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. They were shouting Hosanna, which is a, a Hebrew word that literally means save or save now. And in this context, they would have seen salvation as destroying Rome and reestablishing their political and geographic fortunes. For them, King David is coming, as he did in days of old, to bring defeat on all of God's enemies. God is going to rule and reign as the, as the enemy Rome is finally defeated. When they shouted, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the Lord's name was Yahweh. Yahweh is the Old Testament personal name of God himself, who God revealed himself to be. And to come in his name is to come in his full authority. Blessing, the word blessing means literally happiness or prosperity, well-being. The, the rich Old Testament word is shalom. And shalom is a Hebrew word that means peace, but not just peace in the sense of an absence of war, but the peace and blessing and favor of all of God's goodness. That's what they were shouting. And when they exclaimed, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, that audience would have had in mind God's promise to King David back from the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 7, where, where the prophet spoke and said, you, David, your house and your kingdom will continue uh, before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever. And so in the context of this cryptic pronunciation, in that wild and frenzied audience, everything was pointing to Jesus as King and Lord of all. It was party on. In this moment, in this powerfully prophetic act, Jesus was being proclaimed as God's final definitive act of salvation and deliverance for the nation of Israel, God's people. Now, the audience believed that God's kingdom had finally come. Israel was being reclaimed for her rightful place. All of God's enemies were to be immediately defeated. Rome was to be finally vanquished. And Jesus would usher in the time of God's promised restoration, the time that's hinted at from all creation past. If there were ever a high, a high watermark of frenzied expectation in Israel among the people, this was it right here. This was the moment for which all of Israel had been waiting nearly a thousand years for. God's chosen people suffering oppression and injustice and hopeless despair, overburdened with taxation and a corrupt government. They now enthusiastically welcomed Jesus as the Messiah who had come to finally bring the favor of God. The promised age to come, the kingdom age that 
was promised by Kings David and Solomon and all through the prophets, was now breaking into the present as God's Savior, the Messiah. Yahweh himself was coming to bring his kingdom. It's no wonder they were wild. Just a couple of reflections. When God's kingdom comes, it's Jesus that brings it. We don't bring the kingdom, not through our own merits or our effort, even our faith. But as Jesus' disciples, we are invited to participate in what Jesus is doing, bringing the kingdom. The Father's always bringing the kingdom, and we get to participate in it. Jesus is always continuing what he started, proclaiming and demonstrating, showing and telling the kingdom that's here. My rule is here. Now, it's interesting, he could have simply called for the cult to come, because Christ is king and Lord of all. He owned that cult. He owned the people. He owned the children. He owned the the mountain on which they were standing. He owned everything. He owned the palm branches that they were cutting down to lay in the road. Christ the king could have just called for the cult, but he didn't. You know, prophetically, he saw the cult's availability, and then he sent the two. And as the two were instructed by Jesus to go secure the cult, they went in obedience. They got to participate in the bringing of the kingdom. And so in kingdom ministry, we always want to be asking, uh, you know, what are you doing, Jesus? Where are you bringing the kingdom? And how can we join with you as you bring it? Uh, We want to respond to his initiation and his command, the indicative and imperative. The indicative is always what God is already doing. And the imperative is then is how we, may we respond and join in the work that he's already doing. He initiates, we respond in obedience. And we, we, we can respond in obedience with confidence that wherever he leads us, whatever it is he wants us to do, that he'll provide the resources and the guidance that are necessary to accomplish what he wants. Today we're going to sing a, a, a brand new song in worship. That, that The refrain goes, where, where you go, I go. What you say, I say. What you pray, I pray. It powerfully illustrates this concept that God initiates and we are privileged to respond, to be invited in to what he's doing. When we respond, we have absolutely no idea of the outcome of our obedience. Little did the two imagine that they would be setting the stage for one of the most significant events in all of human history. I can imagine the conversation between the two of them might have been something like this. Oh, great, we get the donkey duty today. But when Jesus, the radical Jesus, calls us to obey, our responsibility, our privilege is to step into what he's already doing. The importance of what we do and the results of what we do are in his hands. He's the king. We're his subjects. So let me illustrate. When the Holy Spirit prompts you to share God's love in a very practical way through an act of kindness or service to a neighbor or a classmate or a coworker or a friend, uh, a neighbor, uh, uh, just obey. Don't, don't. Start trying to figure out how important it is or what Jesus might be up to. You just obey. When he instructs you to to give a sum of money to a certain person or to a certain cause or to a certain ministry or, or a church or at lunch today, an extra large tip to the server, just obey. When he 
when he prompts you to ask someone who's sharing about a, a particularly painful or troubling or, or a situation in their life, and he prompts you to, to say, can I pray for you right now? You just go for it, even though it's uncomfortable to pray out loud. And you don't think of yourselves as having any power. You just, you just say, can I pray for you right now? Or when he prompts you to invite a friend to your small group or to some other event where you're doing life with your family in this church or even next week to our Easter service. You just obey because the results are up to him. Now, it's often been pointed out in devotional literature that the unbroken cult had dignity because of the one who was riding upon it. In in, In a moment of time, this otherwise everyday, ordinary, unimpressive beast of burden carried the king of all creation. Having never been ridden before, the donkey submitted to Jesus and became the remembered donkey of all human history. The most famous donkey of all time. So the beast is a parable for us as well. When Jesus asks us to do something, to go somewhere, to speak something, to carry something, just surrender our present level of understanding and simply, humbly obey. Powerful illustration. Know that our dignity, like the donkeys, will come because we carry the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords in our lives to those that we are called to serve. We are his sons and his daughters. We carry his presence into the world. And in many ways, there is no greater source of significance in the world than that. We carry God's presence where we go on assignment. My I.I. exam at this point would be, what, what is my present level of understanding of God's calling on my life? What he's asked me to do? What, what is the scope of the work that God's ordained for me? And do I have a sense of carrying his presence into the, the three worlds in which I live, my, my work and where I live and the people with whom I do life? Am I carrying uh, his presence, a, a sense of carrying his presence with dignity and significance in the worlds where he's called me. Well, Jesus went straight to the temple. And again, this is more than a casual act. Everything in the last week of Christ's life has a prophetic overtone. And so I want to encourage you as you read and reflect upon the, the text this week, read and understand and interpret all the events of the last week, chapters 11 to 16, through this grid of a prophetic overtone, rather than just an odd assortment of rather random occurrences or even personalized promises to you. That's Western individualism. Think about the larger prophetic picture that's unfolding in this case. Now, it's significant that the temple is at the center of all of Jewish life. It is here that the very presence of God is said to have dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Heaven and earth met in the temple. God descended and convened with humans in the the temple. And and the presence of God, referred to in the Old Testament as the glory of God or the Shekinah glory of God, 
uh, came when Solomon first dedicated the temple. We can read the, the powerful story in the book of First Kings in chapter 8, verse 11 says, The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud. The glorious presence of the Lord filled that temple. Now, sadly, that glory had long departed as Jerusalem had fallen captive to the the Babylonians. And Ezekiel the prophet tells us in the 10th chapter of his letter that the glory of the Lord moved from the door of the temple. The glory of God, the presence of God had departed. But the temple nevertheless remained as one of the great monumental architectural structures of the ancient world. It occupied nearly a fourth of the city of Jerusalem, prominently set on the mountain. And all of Israel was waiting for the glory of the Lord to come back to the temple. Uh, You know, when Yahweh himself would once again assume his rightful place in the temple, his dwelling place, and he would reign over a renewed and restored people and land. That's what they were waiting for. And on Palm Sunday, that day, Israel thought, this is that day. Yahweh, the king, is coming to occupy his temple once again. But it's interesting that instead of doing anything, Mark says that we read in verse 11, Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple, and after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. He returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Jesus checked everything out. He looked at the crowds, he saw the priests making sacrifices, he saw the money changers at their booths, he saw the stalls for the sale of sacrificial animals. That was all technically legal because people who traveled for uh, dozens and dozens or hundreds of miles didn't want to bring their animals with them. So they would exchange their animals for currency and they would buy fresh animals there in the temple. So there wasn't anything immoral or illegal or unethical about that practice in itself. But it was late in the day. And Jesus could see that everything was closing down, and so he only looked around. Now, characteristic of Mark, if you've noticed this, we, we, we get rarely any insight into Jesus' feelings, just a glimpse here and there. We, we don't really know what he was experiencing, but, but based on the events of the next several days, we'll know that Jesus could see through the sacrificial system to the corruption that surrounded it. He knew well the, the temple's vast Wealth that was controlled by the Sadducees. They're the, the upper crust, the blue blood, the aristocracy of the time. They ran the religious system. They cooperated with Rome. They were corrupt. They, even though they claimed to be Orthodox Jews, they denied the sovereignty of God. They denied uh, that there existed a place called heaven and, and didn't believe in the resurrection. And you can see that in Jesus' argument with them in the 12th chapter, verses 18 to 27. I don't think we're reading into the story at this point to see that the radical Jesus was grieved. His heart was broken. He had wept over Jerusalem uh, the the day before, uh, 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 entering on the donkey. The city failed to, to know the hour of its visitation. The religious leaders in particular were waiting for the Messiah all right, but it was a Messiah of their own understanding and interpretation. In fact, they were so sure of their boundary markers, the scruples, you know, that indicated you were pure and pious, all the external measurements by which you could tell if someone really loved God, like working, not not working on the Sabbath, honoring their family, washing their hands in pots and pans. 
that when Jesus didn't acknowledge those boundary markers, they judged him as outside the camp and from the devil. So Jesus retired for the night in Bethany. I have to think it was probably to ask the father what he was supposed to do. The temple belongs to the king. It's his palace. It's his dwelling place. He is sovereign over it. Jesus is the king, the Lord of all, and he has every right to inspect the temple. Well, we are now the temple of God. The church is now the temple. We are the place where heaven and earth meet. We are the holy of holies. We are uh, the place where God has chosen to set up his throne in our hearts. The New Testament reveals in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You see, now every Christ follower is indwelt by the personal, powerful presence of God himself through the Holy Spirit. Paul said in another occasion in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given you by God? You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. You are now the place where God dwells. You are his temple, and so now Jesus looks at us. He gazes at everything, his temple, his followers. Nothing escapes his examination as it did there. He examines our heart, our motives, our actions, our attitudes, our our fruitfulness, our relationships, our time, our goals, our plans, our energy, our money, everything. He's the king. Nothing escapes his gaze. What does the radical Jesus see when he looks at me as his temple? My eye-eye exam is, do I honor God? Would he see that I honor God? That I'm a, a, a dwelling, a fit dwelling place for, for his spirit to live? Would, would Jesus be satisfied to call me his home? Now in verse 12, Mark shifted the scene to the next day and two significant things happened. On the way, Jesus was hungry. He spotted a fig tree, but he only found leaves, no fruit. And so he cursed the fig tree. He said, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And then in verses 15 to 17, we read, when they arrived uh, back at Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called the house of prayer for all nations, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now, many biblical commentators will tell us that, you know, yep, Jesus' anger finally got the best of him. You know, he'd been doing a good job for three and a half years, keeping it under wraps. But, you know, he finally cuts loose and lets his unbridled anger go. I think in saying that, we actually kind of miss the point. In both cases, cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, the actions are prophetic. They're metaphoric. They speak larger than the actual event. In the case of the fig tree, I believe that Jesus was pronouncing his judgment on fruitless Israel. Israel, as God's people, 
we're always to be fruitful in season and out of season. That's why when, when he cursed the fig tree, even though the time of figs was not yet, it's a powerfully prophetic act because it was supposed to have fruit. Israel was supposed to bear fruit, God's fruit, as God's representatives. They were to bear the fruit of, of love and faith and joy and obedience, but they weren't. Jesus, as God's son, had called Israel the last time, one last hope, but they refused. In general, they refused to listen, and he found them barren. No fruit, only leaves. Kind of, kind of like a show of fruit, like a Hollywood movie set, you know, that has a false front. Looks good, but there's nothing behind it. That, that's what Jesus found with Israel, a form of godliness that really denied its power. Now, in the case of the temple, I think Jesus was pronouncing his judgment on the entire religious sacrificial system. He was not merely cleansing the temple because of the corrupt system. It, it was all of that, to be sure. But he was really overthrowing the entire temple system the religious system that was built on the foundation of the substitutionary animal sacrifices. Now remember, in our previous studies, we've seen that Jesus had already usurped the place of the temple by offering God's forgiveness by himself. When the man was lowered down through the roof and healed, Jesus offered forgiveness. You you didn't any longer have to, to go to the temple. And so Jesus had usurped of the temple's function earlier in his ministry. And now no longer did people need to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, uh, to slaughter an innocent animal for their sin. The once for all final sacrifice for sin was ready to be offered on the cross. And so in anticipation of his death on the cross in several days, as he filled up the final substitutionary sacrifice as the the Lamb of God slain for the foundation uh, for, for all the world. He was upending the entire sacrificial system. And so in in this act, Jesus is announcing the old order is over. It's gone. The old covenant is of no effect any longer. The old order is gone. And the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, They knew that Jesus was assaulting their whole construction of faith and practice, everything that they had erected. And I have to think, really, at the core of it, they knew that their livelihood, their security, their future, uh, their identity were all now at risk. And so they united together, uncommon enemies. They united together in agreement that Jesus must be destroyed. You can read their charges over the next several chapters. Uh, How could God call Jesus to siege his own house, the very center of, of worship and forgiveness and celebration? How could God call Jesus at Passover, no less, to turn over the whole means of approaching him and pleasing him through sacrificing little lambs that he instituted in the original Exodus? How could Jesus, like John the baptizer, claimed to teach and preach and heal with God's divine authority. How could Jesus encourage the pain of taxes to Rome? How could Jesus claim the title of the Son of Man from the 110th Psalm, descended from the lineage of David? 
How could Jesus claim to be the, the, the vineyard owner's son who was finally rejected by the, the workers? How could he claim that, that they did not know the scriptures or the power of God and understand the, the truth of the resurrection? How, how could they, how could Jesus say that that poor widow with her two mites gave more than all the rest of them in their pomp and their arrogance? You see these arguments unfold in the next two chapters. They say, this is madness. This is blasphemy. He must be satanically inspired, a religious fanatic that's got to be put to death. And so this week, we'll now read the unfolding story of the kingdom's final clash. Their mounting rejection, Jesus' betrayal, his unfair trial, suffering, and ultimately his crucifixion and death on Good Friday. Lord, as we enter the Passion Week, we have to ask, what, what do you want us to see? What, what do you want us to understand and do in response? I pray, God, that you give all of us eyes to see and ears to hear you this week as we engage in the, the story again, the much larger story in a much larger context than we've ever imagined. May we, with grace and humility, experience what you want us to experience this Easter week. And Lord, now as we, as we surrender our hearts and lives to you through worship, in song, and in the offering, we pray that you'd receive these gifts for what they are, tokens that our life belongs to you as the King, in your name.